Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Oh, okay. Uh, I've got to introduce you the incredible, the amazing Clive Stack. And I'm going to thank my mum and my mum's cooking for this podcast because you can't turn down food when mum offers you dinner. And so I think that was probably in Clive's brain when she invited Clive and us to have dinner with her one night. And it was the longest dinner party I've ever been to because we got chatting about Clive's work, which is all about emotional intelligence. And well, none of us could shut up. It just, it was just so interesting. And I, this is about 12 months ago, well before we even considered having the podcast and we were like, our paths have got to cross. We, we have got to do something with Clive. Clive's work isn't yet published, uh, but he has formed his own views on what emotions serve for us, like what, what the role of emotions is for us as the human race and what we can learn from it. And sitting across the table from Clive in this podcast, I felt like he was just kicking me in the guts <laughs> when he started talking about first fury and then freedom I I just had like goosebumps down my arms and I'm like, is he is he just reading me like a book? So the, this podcast, I'm not even going to do any more intro. You've just got to listen to it. It doesn't matter whether you're an athlete, a person in just, an, you know, an everyday person striving high in your work or health. You just have to listen to this podcast. Um, so let's jump straight into it. sitting down with us today. It's a pleasure. Yeah, welcome to the Find Your Feet podcast. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to start out, um, I've obviously already introduced you, but I wanted to ask how you got involved in the work that you're doing with Humanitas, where you actually were the founder of Humanitas, uh, and how you uh, have led into working in complex medical cases with drug and substance dependence. Sure. Slightly slightly different. One... um I knew from when I was about eight, nine years old, um, more solid about 14, that I wanted to set up Humanitas. Um, But at that stage, I was just a dyslexic kid that um, didn't have any training or anything but um, an enormous compassion for people. Just um, don't know why. I'm pretty sure that I was just born with it. Um, so, um, I went through the various things, got through school, got into medicine, uh, got through medicine, which is <laughs> I know how tough that is. <laughs> I tried. It's a feet and a half. Yeah. Um, and then when I started, um, practicing medicine, um, as a GP, when you're a kind, considerate, um, caring person Mm. you draw to you a particular demographic of people Um, and one of the interesting things is that when you first start practicing um, you're the group that you're drawn to you are drug dependent yeah Um, mainly because they 
feel that they can get from you what they need, which is mm. their drugs or dependence. So I, as all people in that, I've talked to other doctors and they say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Once one person gets their drug of dependence, they will tell everyone else in the field it's a small world and your name goes and out, your name goes out and yeah. then you get everyone else coming along because they go, oh, he gave me what I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, that then led to going, well, okay, just giving them what they want isn't going to help them. Um, I need to try and work out a way to help them. Who can I send them to? There was no one to send them to. Not that they would go, as in you could refer them, but they wouldn't go to these Mm -hmm. people. So we just started doing the work ourselves. And from there, basically, over 25 years, we've developed um, our models and um, emotional models and things. I can't wait to get into talking about the emotional models and what you're doing with human emotion. Uh, but I'm kind of curious to know where do you think that empathy came from that you have? Um, I'm well. I would actually say I was born with it. Um, our modelling does even support the concept that the time, place um, of birth. Um, can have an impact on your emotional direction. Um, in other words, your personality, your your leanings, your personality leanings. Um, and, of course, um, having parents that don't dissuade you from it. One of the biggest decisions that I made when I, I was so, uh, I guess, keen to get into medicine, you couldn't understand how much I wanted to do it, I thought I would be so disappointed if I didn't get in that I actually convinced myself to do teaching, which is what all the rest of the family had done. So I applied for teaching, engineering and medicine and got into all three and decided to go and do teaching. And my father father said, don't be stupid, you've always loved um, medicine. Yeah. Go and do medicine. Because actually what I was worried about was I was worried that my enjoyment of medicine might be ruined by doing it. A bit like you might love stamp collecting, but if you did it as a job, you would become bored by it or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I was I was a little bit scared at that stage. I was only young. Um, and what, 17, 18 or whatever. And uh, Dad made the best decision Funny. and said... Just go and do it. You can always drop out and do something else if you don't like it. But Gosh, I'm hearing a lot of similarities just sitting here thinking about my own story and this actual fear actually to do what we're doing with Find Your Feet because I've always just loved exercise and helping people, but I didn't know whether making that my career would kill the love of it. Indeed. It's really, really interesting. But and We'll talk about that we more because will. it's... Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm going to delve d- deeper into all of that in a moment. But I'm curious because for people working with people, especially in the complex situations that you do, how do you stay motivated to keep doing it and how do you keep your health and unwind from these days? Um, most importantly... It is making sure that you do as you need to do in any moment of the day. That sounds like a really long-winded way of saying it, but (laughs) what's important is 
I found myself extremely anxious and uncomfortable and couldn't sleep when I did things quickly as my bosses were telling me to do, um, when I did them incompletely and you knew you could sense that you were, you were missing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my practice moved and, sorry, through that, particularly through hospital work and things where you actually um, have a sense to do something, you're too young to understand what your intuition is actually guiding you to, you don't do it because you've got something else to do and lo and behold, that's the patient that arrests or has the um, adverse outcome or something. And being a compassionate individual, it stings a lot um, is a very nice way of saying that it, is, yeah. it hits you very deeply. Um, and because of that driver, because of that compassion, that need... Um, I guess to first do no harm, I was driven in a direction to listen to my intuition Mm -hmm. because people's lives were at stake. And so very quickly I moved to um, probably being, in fact, I I know I was, uh, when I was an intern, so this is when we first graduate, Medicine. Your, yeah. your your first practice in medicine with real people and your responsible is as an intern. Mm-hmm. You're very green and very naive. Um, but what I found was I was the one that was spending all the time with patients and um, I would want to do it properly. Mm. And that drive to do things properly comes from my desire not to be not to have that emotion where you go, I didn't do it and this resulted, that's my responsibility. So what you're saying is that you can unwind at the end of a day because you know that you've done everything that you needed to do in that day to be content with what you've done. Indeed. Yeah. So early on when I didn't do it, you don't sleep, you toss and turn, you... um, uh, you don't feel comfortable. You're constantly, <coughs> excuse me, um, with bad dreams, reminding mm-hmm. you of the things that you haven't done, um, lots of things. But when you actually learn to listen and learn to live in the moment, so for me, when I'm with a patient, anyone at any stage, whether it be putting in a cannulation, whether it be um, dealing with a wound, I'm there. Mm. So... I'm not thinking about where else I need to be, even though there are 50 other things that you have to be doing, you are dealing with what you're doing. And when you deal with what you're doing and you do it to follow every uh, intuitive thought that you're guided to, um, you actually find that it resolves. An example, can I give you an example? Mm, I'd love an example. A a lady came in to see me once um, many years ago in general practice and she came in with a uh, actually I think it was an ingrown toenail (laughs) and we dealt with the ingrown toenail showed her how to fix it um, all of that and as I was finishing with that I it just occurred to me to ask about the rest of her health so how are you going otherwise and so I've got a bit of a cough now a bit of a cough in general practice is normal. 
You see it so often. But intuitively, it did not feel right. Mm-hmm. And I ordered a chest x-ray, and I can assure you, I do not order a chest x-ray for every okay, person that comes in with a cough. I did examine her, and there was nothing to find and, and so on. Mm-hmm. But we did the x-ray. The x-ray showed a mass. Within three days, we got um, – oh, we, we then did the CT that day. Uh, within three days, I had her to the thoracic surgeons who did the biopsy on the mass. It was a high-grade lymphoma. Um, which would have killed her within the week if we hadn't Mm -hmm. done that test. She got treatment and survived because it was so quick, because it was so, um, because it was caught in time. Now, that's just one example, and you might go, well, that's a coincidence. No, well, you wouldn't have done that if you hadn't have had the intuition to follow your gut to do the x-ray. But that, that single event... The reason that I could do that was because of the training that I had given done. myself, mm-hmm. mainly by being really hard on myself, um, yeah. and that if I saw something that I thought about doing and didn't do, um, I would kick myself. Mm. And you learn. You, you learn. Well, it's really interesting, Clive, because, you know, my, my experience is working more in the performance coaching and life coaching sector and I also am obviously an athlete myself or have been, more have been these days. But when I think about how well I can sleep at night comes down to how content I am with what I've done at any moment of any given day. Yes. So you normally like when you go to bed and you start mulling over things or you can't unwind at the end of a day, it's because you're there's some deep discontent in you isn't there absolutely and that's exactly what you're saying indeed so. and these are the things that will actually drive you to your purpose and everyone everyone on this earth everyone every um, part of humanity has their particular path their particular purpose within the within the um, organism of humanity um, I believe mm. and I believe that everyone if they as they learn to listen to themselves, to where they're being guided, will be drawn to their path, whether that be an, uh, an athlete, whether that be a garbage collector, whether that be someone who goes to the moon. Mm. Um, they will be drawn to the things that will get them to that end. And that, that's the process that I understand is finding our feet. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if we ever find our feet, but I think it's definitely that process and I'm really interested to to talk more about purpose in a little bit because Mm. it's been something that's commonly it's a word that's come up in every single podcast that we've done so I think all of us are kind of seeking a purpose um but I'm I'm interested to know um sort of more about the work that you're doing I'm I'm going to call it in emotional intelligence I don't know if that's how you would term it but your project is called Psychology of the Soul. Yeah, Physiology of the Soul. Physi- physiology, is it? Sorry, yes. Physiology of the Soul. So can you maybe give us some clarity on what what you're doing and what emotional intelligence is to you or what term okay. you prefer to use? Well, one, one of the, one of the um, projects that we've been doing for a long time is the Physiology of the Soul project, which is um, basically looking at the emotions that people experience and defining what, where they come from 
and what they are there to do. So in the early years when these patients were coming to me requesting their panadine forts and their endones and their um, um, diazepams and other drugs of dependence, it was hard to know what to do with them, mm. how to help them. Yeah. And so one of the things we have been trained to do uh, all through medicine is take a good history and do an examination. So that's basically what I did. And obviously in this area, the most of it is on history. So I would take a good history. And basically that was from when they were as early as they remember so if they remembered when they were born, mm-hmm. which surprisingly one or two did. Wow. Um, right through to the present day and we would take that history. That history would take six to eight weeks to get with... With each person. With each person. Um, an hour consult um, or more uh, once a week for... Six to eight six weeks. Six to eight weeks to get every bit that they could remember of what had happened. When you do that um, for hundreds of patients over thousands of hours, what eventually happened was that there were patterns that emerged that were, um, to me, really obvious that they fitted into a very strict pattern. It didn't matter what class of person, whether they were um, upper class, lower class, middle class people, what uh, nationality they were, where they came from. The emotion had the same um, cause and direction. It was doing the same thing for everyone, which made me begin to... Uh, wonder whether or not this was in fact a genetically imprinted process, which we we believe it is. Um, but that um, that pulling together of all that information started to basically form like a jigsaw puzzle. Hmm. One of the privileges of working with people in the drug and alcohol field is that they are on the edges of society. These are the people mm. that are willing to die either through suicide or kill. These are the extremes of our society. And if you have ever done jigsaw puzzles, you'll know that when you start a jigsaw puzzle, (laughs) you start with the edges. Because the edges tell you where the boundaries are. Hmm. And if I hadn't had the privilege of working with these people, one, one year we had six suicides. Now, this is at the, at the peak of working in, in drug and alcohol these are high risk, very high risk uh, patients. It's um, most GPs would get maybe one in their lives um, unless they are interested in this area, in which case they'll get quite a few. Mm. Those extremes gave us the borders, mm. and it was obvious that it was a pattern. It was a strict border. So what you're saying is, it didn't really matter where you come from in society or what your interests are or how you, where you were brought up, that if 
someone feels anger or you feel anger or that person feels anger, we have a similar pathway to anger and a similar outcome from anger. Is that yeah. correct? I might point out there are, there are different... <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There are different forms of anger. So I, um, when you use a word like anger with me, um, I'm thinking of the broad spectrum. There are a number of them. Um, but that number is finite. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. and absolutely. And they have their um, particular function, um, like, for example... Um, fury, take fury. So fury we define, and yes, okay, we we have to define it because we've started to see these patterns. So to us, fury is the emotion, the anger that you feel when you want to kill. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean you will kill, but it's the smash, destroy, where you want to take the plate and throw it, where you want to, um, um, yeah, Hit a wall, yeah. Yeah. Um, more, more importantly, you want to destroy. Destroy something. Okay. Now, Makes sense. That, that fury it was one of the first emotions we saw in this group and it was one of the first emotions that we actually were able to um, map. And basically what fury is, is when you see a quality in someone else, sorry, when you see a quality of yourself reflected in someone else's behaviour that you want to change, can change, but haven't changed yet, then you will actually experience fury. In other words, this is something that you want to kill within yourself. This is an aspect of you. This is like a... A, uh, a mole that you want to remove or, or a stake in you that you want to pull out. These are things that you do not, your personality, your, your being does not want there. We put these there for all sorts of reasons, um, but, and that's a longer story, but when they're there and we find them, they're kind of like an invisible stake or an invisible needle mm-hmm. or something. And every time we touch it, it hurts us. It, it does affect the way we, we do things. It restricts our, our behaviours in certain ways. But the way we see them, in, in some ways, it's a bit like your ears. You will never, ever see your ears, ever, if there wasn't a mirror. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. so these are parts of our personality that you cannot see without a reflection, and so therefore you need someone else's behaviour to be the mirror. To be you. the mirror. Now that does not mean that the other person has that problem. Mm-hmm. If we are feeling the emotion, we have the problem. So when when um, we experience something like fury, we see in someone else a behaviour that makes us, well, we think it makes us furious, but in actual fact, we are making ourselves furious because what that energy is, what that energy of fury is, is to change that aspect in ourselves. And what's so exciting about about (laughs) fury, and I love the emotion, especially in, in this context, because right at that moment when you're experiencing fury, you have everything that's needed to change it to actually take that thing and change it, fix it right there, right then, forever, because that's what the energy is for. That's what that fury that we smash something with or kill someone else with is actually there to remove that thing from ourselves. It's the energy to pull it out. A bit like if you, if you had a, a um, splinter or a thorn or a, or, a, or a stake in you and you know you have to pull it out and you know it's going to hurt, 
and you kind of have to get your get built up get to going job. right yeah. yep and get <laughs> focused and go right okay I'm gonna do it and then you pull it out it's kind of mm. like that fury is the point at which you can do it so when you redirect it you can in fact take that out and it will never be there again mm. once that is fixed it's fixed huh. That's really interesting. So in the, in the heat of that moment of fury, you should take a good long, good long look in the mirror and work out what is it in me that I, I, I dislike, I want to remove and try and do something about it right then and there. The, the only thing I would change in what you just said is <laughs> I wouldn't use the word should. Okay. Uh, only because should, should directs us in a direction of not being able to solve it, mm-hmm. whereas if we actually understand that it's what we want to do. So if we use the word, it tells me that I want to change this, Mm -hmm. I can change this, I just haven't changed it yet, then we can use it. And when you have done it, then you obviously needed to do it. That's so interesting. So what you're saying, if I was to try and summarise it again, is that emotions do give us a window into how we can choose to respond to things okay am i along the right track (laughs) yeah i would i would say my definition would be that an emotion is the force to help you to become the person that you want to be okay and our emotions are the way our brain controls our behavior so if your brain wants to control the circulation in your toe it can do it. Mm-hmm. It can cause hyperemia in your toe. Um, but if it wants to change your behaviour, it needs to give you an emotion. And the emotions are there to guide us to alter our behaviour, either do more of something or do less of something. Mm-hmm. When we love something, it's something we need to be doing more of. When we don't, yeah. vice versa. And so are they coming from a un- subconscious place? Yes, so the the emotions come from a system called the limbic system and the limbic system is a complex group of of, um, um, nuclei and and, um, neural pathways and so on within the brain that actually date right back to our... um, um, sort of the crocodiles and the alligators, those Mm -hmm. sorts of that sort of time. And so that reptilian part of our brain, um, as it developed, it was where emotions began. We have a lot of cognitive things that we now do as humans to change it, which is what causes us the problem, um, to to sort of uh, ignore and uh, disregard and so on. But... um, Understanding that all animals from um, basically all vertebrates up have the same range of emotions that we do. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you look at uh, Pankist or um, any of those animal behavioralists, um, they're very convinced, as am I, that these are that we, we experience the same range of emotions that the animals do. Yeah, I was going to ask that because, and, and it was going to be one of my questions, was... We are the emotions that we're talking about purely human emotion. Definitely not. They're Definitely not. not. So when people have dogs, I, I mean, I used to have a dog, yeah. and if you had a day where you felt a bit sad, 
the dog appeared to be sad or if you were like, yeah, we're going for a run and the dog suddenly was like, yeah, we're going for a run. Absolutely. And you'll you'll notice that the dog... Um, gets um, feels feels embarrassed, you know, when it's eaten the pillow and mummy comes home <laughs> and it sits there with its head down and you know that it's got it's it's ashamed of what yeah. it's done. And those emotions are very real and they're complete. So the understanding that we have at the moment is yes, animals, particularly the vertebrates, um, we share the same emotions. I would even suggest this is a contentious thing, but I would actually suggest that the one common emotion, sorry, the one common language that we actually have, uh, that we share with all animals, is the language of emotions, which is part of the reason why I think deciphering the language is so, so valuable because it gives us an, a way of communicating with all, um, at least vertebrates. Well, you could, and it, and then you can go back to humans and think, so we're not just talking about animals now, but if we have an understanding and a language of emotions, then from cultural differences and value differences Absolutely. and language differences. And they just they just change the way in which we experience them. But whether you are Chinese, Japanese, Indian, German, Italian, your yeah. emotions will, will give you the same... same. Outcome. Outcome. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting. Oh my god, I could literally talk for hours, but I won't. Um, I'm curious to know then. Do we have one dominant emotion? Like I, I you know, I'm, I'm trying to put put this all back into my own shoes and try and understand it through my own shoes. And I think about myself, and I think like, no, I won't think about myself. I can think of some people who describe themselves as like, yeah. I'm an angry person now. I know I can't mm-hmm. talk about anger as one emotion, but they go, oh, I'm an angry I'm an angry kind of person. Well, the, the answer to that is um, yes, and now we're talking about personality. Mm-hmm. So as you start to map emotions, once you start to understand the complexities of the emotions, what you also realise is that we have leanings that we're born with. Now, mm-hmm. those, those leanings are probably, um, but there, there's some very interesting links within our circadian systems, to the emotional pathways such that we certainly don't have absolute proof but there is certainly links that are possible and um, um, some of the some of the work I'll just go back a, a step and I'll just explain something when we have been working on emotions we understand that this is the core of what humans, that drives human behaviour. Because it's the core of what drives human behaviour, the way to understand it best is to actually look at the whole spectrum of humanity and what we have drawn into our cultures, what we have drawn into our experiences through time, through history, and we can then start to understand more about the... um, leanings, if you like, that, that humanity can have. One, one example of this is, uh, that relates is the fact that astrology, now I might just preface that with astrologers have a belief that it's the stars that influence the personality, and I would mm-hmm. absolutely <coughs> refute that. <laughs> but what I would say is there is a basic truth to what they're saying in our work. 
What I would actually say is it's not related to the stars, but what the stars do is they give you an orientation in time and place. And because they give an orientation in time and place on the earth, so a time that you're born that relates to particular solar cycles, particular uh, seasonal cycles, particular, um, there are seven and eight year um, cycles of the earth going around the sun. There are, there are lots of cycles that affect the length of day, um, mm-hmm. um, quality of the light, the type of food that's, that's abundant on, on, in your particular um, uh, long latitude that you're born in, whether if you're born in equatorial regions, there's there's different foods and different oh, um, yeah. um, ways that you're growing up in heat and so on. Uh, when you when you go more to the polar regions, uh, you're dealing with different things, longer um, hour, longer daylight hours, etc., etc. Yeah. What the stars do, and I put in quotes, <laughs> the stars do, <laughs> is they when people look at the stars at birth, Mm -hmm. what they're looking at is your position on the earth, your time on the earth that you're born into. That position and time is actually what determines the personality, not the stars. That's what we believe. So we believe that um, when you're born, you're born into a particular cycle, a particular solar cycle, a particular earth cycle, a particular latitude and longitude. All of these these things are taken into account in astrology. Um, And we believe that that particular orientation at birth, this is not about about conception, this is not about whether you were um, uh, induced or not induced, this is exposure to light to your superoptic nuclei at birth. So this is, and, and retinal cells now, they they believe as well, um, that actually set up your circadian rhythm. So when the circadian rhythms are started and you're exposed, that actually, um, we believe there are pathways that can actually control <clears throat> a personality that is born. There are other factors, of course, such as genetic factors and environmental factors and um, birth parents and so on, and I'm not saying that they don't exist. I'm saying this is one of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But my point, and the reason, sorry, I digressed into that, is because when you look at the cultures throughout time, the Egyptian culture had astrology. The um, basic uh, Jewish uh, mysticism, the Kabbalah, has astrology. It is, there is actually a form of astrology within the within the Kabbalah. The um, um, there is a German astrology. There is um, uh, Iranian astrology. There is there are astrologies around the world that you actually can look at. And what's fascinating is that each of those astrologies, as they develop, they still develop twelve signs. The Chinese astrology has 12, 12 years of um, thing. The, the numbers are really interesting. And what we've actually found is that they correlate with the emotional um, findings that we've had, the main emotional systems. It was one of the most exciting um, days of the work in this um, um, uh, modelling was when I discovered how it, how it fits in to that cycle where we can now um, understand where certain emotional uh, directions come from. And the reason I'm going through all that is to answer your question, which was, 
can people have a particular emotion that they are um, predominant in? And the answer to that is yes. And, but it is not a particular emotion, it is a particular group of emotions. So when you, when you talk about, for example, the anger group, it's actually called the rage group, but it, it's anger. there are a number of different angers. Those different angers affect us in different ways um, and we experience them in different forms. So yes, you can have somebody who's predominantly angry. Etc. Mm-hmm. I would suggest that I was born into a, a, a personality leaning, which is a predominantly care um, mm-hmm. pathway. So a lot of those experiences of responsibility and things, which is, which is where responsibility lies, is only in those that care. It doesn't exist in, in any of the other pathways. Responsibility is is predominantly through the care pathways. That's why we take responsibility for our children Um, when we care for our children. It's why the caring pathways are the ones that actually take all the responsibility if you look into um, legal and other other, uh, jurisdictions. They they impose or or hand over and they are taken freely the responsibility. So is this why the project is called Physiology of the Soul? Actually, the interesting thing is I knew the name of the, of the book, um, which we haven't written yet, <laughs> um, um, and the project um, when I was about 12, 14, wow. and I knew it would be called The Physiology of the Soul, and I had no idea, absolutely no idea what, what that actually meant. What it was going to do, yeah. In the last, over the last 25 years doing the work that we've done, I now understand it. And yes, that's exactly what it is. It is the workings of the emotions. It is the workings of the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, why do we use the word soul? Because it's the core of who you are. It's the core of what is driven. Sadly, it's got religious connotations. Mm. And with all due respect to anyone that's religious, I, I don't want to step on any toes. Mm. But it's not a religious concept. It is a concept that is within us all. And that core, the best name for it, is soul. soul and it's who you are it's it's your path within the spectrum of humanity within the um bit like bit like a, a massive clock if you like um one of those old ones where mm-hmm. you've got little gears and things mm-hmm. and understanding that you take the smallest of gears out smallest of gears and the clock stops working mm-hmm. understanding that sure there are some big gears that are obvious and and um, show up, but there are others that are that are not so obvious. But every single one of them is important. So, if you've been working around the edge of the puzzle, yeah, then there's obviously the ones in the middle as well that you. I, I point out that the edges of the puzzle is where we started. That's, it actually sorry, gave us an start. idea of what we were looking for, <clears throat> or even that there was something to look for. Mm-hmm. What we have done that was very early days. Um, what we have done over the last 20, 25 years is we've filled in the middle. And we are not complete, but we have a model now that is uh, has not needed to change for near on seven years. Interesting. Um, so can what you're doing, I mean, it can obviously, it, it's proving that it can help people 
to uh, complex medical cases, but could we also use that to master excellence or health or positive outcomes? Absolutely. So um, mastering excellence is is interesting. One of of the uh, divisions is perfection. Oh, I, I, I put my hand up there. <laughs> and it is, it is a fascinating, fascinating concept. Perfection has been talked about through the ages, the, the um, Tibetan masters, the, the, there's huge of esoteric literature that talk about the search for perfection. You'll love this one. I, I love it. The, the, what, what perfection is is perfection um, is about living the now. There is no perfection except in the moment. So when we search for perfection, what we are searching to do is to live live in in the the moment. And that is what um, mindfulness is about. That's what um, a lot of the meditation techniques are about. It is all about getting us and, and... getting us to live in the moment. The, the old masters, the, the masters of the East, the, the um, um, Confucius, um, a, a lot of the teachers throughout time have taught us to f- seek for perfection. What it is trying to get us to do is to live the moment. We are perfectly who we need to be when right now. Right now. It's the only time you're perfect. But that does not mean that we don't want to seek for or strive for something for tomorrow, and nor does it mean that in the past um, we were the same as what we are now. But what I can say is, in the past, we were perfectly who we needed to be. In the past, even with the things that we did and didn't do that we might have um, regrets about or or, uh, feel guilt about, and in fact, interestingly, guilt is one of the emotions that fits into this domain. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll tell yeah, you. Yeah, I'll tell you about guilt. That one's sitting with me too. <laughs> so, so a, a use for this this uh, technology, a use for this um, this understanding. For example, guilt fits into this, and the reason guilt fits into this is because guilt has a particular function, and its function is to get us to re-examine the perspective in which we are looking at something. So, for example, if I did something yesterday or six months ago or six years ago or 60 years ago, I did it in the context of who I was at that time, Mm -hmm. place and person. And with that knowledge that you had then. And with that knowledge that I had then. When I, you will never, ever, ever experience guilt in the moment ever it's not possible and if somebody says that it is then we will have to change it out our model because i have never found it you cannot experience guilt about and in a moment of action but a millisecond later a millisecond later i'm now looking at it from a different perspective because i've now done it i've now experienced it i now know what it's like i now look at it and go oh maybe i won't do that again Mm which is more to the point than, oh, I didn't do it right last time. When we look at things like um, traumatic experiences, things that we do, choices we make that might have massive impacts on our life in all sorts of ways, 
and we look at the decision we make. And in that moment, we made the perfect decision. I have had someone tell me this just recently, you know, that because I've been thinking back about some of the decisions I've made in my own life, particularly around the way I've dealt with traumatic experiences, the way I've dealt with, you know, changing direction in my career. And they said, but Hanny, in the moment, at that age, with the knowledge you had, with the skills you had available to you, could you have possibly made that decision any differently? And the answer answer is actually no. No, that's what I thought too. Because who we were then and there, and that's the whole point, is that we only experience guilt when we look at it from an incorrect perspective. (laughs) And that perspective could be a perspective of time, place or person. Mm -hmm. So I can look at something a moment later and I'm not looking at it from the same time. I can look at something as a different person. I grow up. When I do something and I see what what the result is, I become a different person, so I am now a different person. So what you're really talking about is acceptance at that point. Except being able to accept the decisions that you have made in the moments of time that you've made. It is definitely part of that, yes, absolutely. Um, And it's it's also, um, there's many aspects to it, but it's about acceptance. It's also about... um, surrender to Mm -hmm, it's it's about mm -hmm. the about allowing ourselves to go it's happened Mm -hmm. i can't change it it was before it was ages ago it's been done surrender to it it's Mm -hmm. happened you can't change this but then acceptance is the part where we actually go how can that help me because without acceptance All it stays is an experience that we know is important. Our intuition knows because it keeps drawing you back to it. It keeps saying, so what what about that? Exactly. Ah, And when you learn, when you take that experience and you go, okay, what what can it um, what can it teach me? I'll I'll give you a lovely metaphor. I love this metaphor. (laughs) If you're a gardener, you would know how valuable manure is. Mm -hmm. Okay. We, we have, um, as um, years ago, we've got terribly unfertile ground and we would go around a friend's paddock and we would yeah. collect the horse, manure, the horse manure and we would get trailers of the stuff <laughs> and bring it home and put it into the garden and we were so excited, every little cow paddy or every yeah. little um, horse, horse manure that we would have found. The shit in our life, the shit in our life, the stuff that we go, God, that's shit is actually our fertiliser. It's actually something that we, if we take that experience, that shitty experience, and we understand that, yep, if you carry around the shit, you'll just smell. (laughs) You'll just stink. No one will want to come near you. You won't want to even come near you. But when you take that shit and you actually allow, you give it the value that it is and you dig it into the foundation of who you are, you can't put shit directly on the roots. You've got to dig it in. You've got to let it mature. And what that's about is over time and experience, we slowly learn and we slowly get the nutrients mm-hmm. from that shit. That shit has certain things. Not all of the shit is actually there to help you, but there are certain micronutrients, for example. In the metaphor, it's certain parts of that experience, certain aspects of what happened that can help you to be the person that you want to be. be. And so there is no experience which is bad. Bad. And there is no experience which is good. 
Mm-hmm. They are just experiences. And I know that's a broad statement, but I can tell you now. No, I mean, it sits with me beautifully. You know, I just, you know, I just think about the decisions that you've made and you go, gee, I won't make that decision again because you learn from it. Absolutely. And that's and what helps happen. you to become a wise or wisdom in your old age, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, oh my gosh. This and, is really but understand that when you experience guilt, Mm-hmm. Going back to what you talked mm-hmm. about, all it's saying is relook at it, but from the perspective, take yourself back. If you are still experiencing guilt, then you need to think of who you were. You need to think of what you were. You need to think of where you were, mm. what experience you were having, what was happening around you, and you, then you need to think about um, um, the the time that you were. Mm. And when you are fully in that moment. That guilt will go. <laughs> and that's just so guilt. yeah, and that's just guilt, but you're speaking my mind right at the moment. So it, where does mindfulness and meditation come into this? Because again, my own understanding and my own use of mindfulness and meditation is to try to bring me into the now and to be able to sit with discomforts within the body uh, and I think it has a lot of um, involvement in acceptance theory as well. Yep. So, but that that's one thing. Like you can bring yourself to the moment, but then most of us don't have the emotional understanding to then know what to do in sure, that moment. So sure. can you tell me a bit about your understanding of all of that? So absolutely agree. Um, mindfulness and, and meditation of various sorts do help us to bring us back to the moment and they give us uh, the ability to see what it is that happened. A lot of people through their upbringing actually have examples of all of these things. This is not, this is not our invention, okay? This is just that we are mapping what's already there. Mm. We already have this knowledge, If you are willing to listen, you will be given exactly what you need to do. The problem is we don't listen to our intuition. We don't listen to the guidance that's given because we're brought up to believe all sorts of things that counter that. Like, for example, the common thought, the common thought that someone makes us feel something. That is such a common thing in music, in, in uh, movies, in, in common parlance, in common language, is that someone makes us feel something and nobody can make you feel something. And that is a fundamental thing. We, we have our own brains. Unless I am telekinetic, unless I actually have the capacity of um, manipulating molecular structures, mm. I cannot make you feel something. I can do stuff that you will choose to feel certain things about and I can be pretty sure what you will feel when I do those things, but I still did not make you feel them. You felt them because your processes, your body, your, your experience, your brain made you feel them. And that's the same with actions. I mean, so I used to write training plans for everyone, physical training plans, because there was this understanding by people coming to me that they felt like they needed to be told what to do to get to a level of mastery. 
And yet it didn't sit with me because it felt like they weren't then listening to their own intuition and almost overriding their own intuition with what I was telling them to do. But then at the end of the day, they still made the decision to go with mine or their own advice. Great example of how the wisdom is there. You find that wisdom by just looking and seeing what you're seeing, Mm. um, person after person after person. Absolutely agree. Because your motto when I looked at your website was about helping people to help themselves. Yes. And that was the same outcome that I got to with my own coaching was it had to be about empowering people. The basic rule is, is that if you do something for someone, and that's fine, if the person is incapable... So if the person is a child in certain respects and you are compassionate, then you do for the child what the child cannot do. And there are certain aspects that we are all children with. There are certain things we just can't do. And so we need someone to do it for us. I don't have the ability to um, do administration processes as well, so you actually find somebody who can Mm -hmm. help you to do it. So I'm a child in that respect. Mm -hmm. But we can't be adult in everything. Mm -hmm. When there is something that someone cannot do, if you have a child and they're growing up and they don't know how to tie up their shoelaces, then you tie them for them. But you show them and you get them to trial it and when they've got dexterous enough to be able to start to manoeuvre the the shoelaces, you show them the certain things that they can do and they they stuff it up and they do certain things and you keep supporting them and and, uh, giving it to them. But once they know how to do up their shoelaces, you let them do up their shoelace. The difference is, first of all, you show them until the point at which you know they are capable and then you need to let them do it. Otherwise you breed anxiety, which we'll talk about Mm -hmm. in a bit. What, what What I'm suggesting is that sometimes you might need to show people their plan. You might need to give them the wisdom of your experience because you've got a lot of experience from a lot of different people. You can read them a lot better than that aspect of themselves, a lot better than they can at that moment. Mm -hmm. So you might find that there are some people you need to give that to. But as they start to see the plans, see what it does, you talk to them about it, they start to see certain things that they feel they might need to do more of or less of, they then now take that plan. They've, you've shown them how to do the shoelace. They, you, you, they're showing you that they're now starting to be able to manipulate the, 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 the laces and tie them. And once you know they can tie their own shoelaces, you let them develop their plan. So that's from the perspective of the coach or the mentor or the guide guiding Absolutely. someone. But if you're the one that's in the shoes being coached or mentored or guided, okay, then... If we are living in the now and more capable of reading ourselves right at this moment, we should, over time, pick up intuitions that tell us that we are ready to get yeah. in, get there, Again, again I would challenge your should. Oh, but, should. Um, Sorry. Only, only because it will draw you into a place that is... Um, I, sorry, I, I listen to the language. Um, but, yes, you may want to change what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But what um, I got distracted by your should. Um, but so what I was really 
questioning is if you're if you're the the one being coached ah, or yes. guided yep. or mentored I think we all, when I'm thinking about my own experiences being coached, for example, even at the moment I'm working with a voice coach, I feel yep. raw, I feel novice. I ah, now here you go. This is the, and this is the point that I was actually going to make. In order to actually learn from someone, in order to actually be the learner, mm-hmm. you need a certain set of qualities. Not everybody has those qualities. Hmm. The qualities that you actually need are the ability to play. You need the ability to um, be able to experiment, to take risks, to make a sound that sounds terrible in your voice coaching mm-hmm. that you listen to and you go, oh, my God, is that, <laughs> is that the noise that came out of my, my mouth or my, my vocal cords? We need to have that ability to play. But play, when you, when you have it, you, you, to be able to play, you have to be humble. To be able to play, you have to have um, uh, allow yourself to be vulnerable. You, you have to do all sorts of things. Um, there's a whole host of, of qualities that fit into, into that path. We cannot learn if we are not humble. We cannot learn if we think we know. We cannot learn if we are not prepared to take the risk to be a fool or to be incapable or to mess up because if you are not allowing yourself those those freedoms then you will restrict your capacity to learn and that sadly is is what a lot of experiences do to us it's what certain personalities do to us and there are some people that will not learn my my father used to say I still would I'm sure um says that there are some people who have 50 years experience. There are other people who have one year's experience 50 times over. (laughs) And those are the people who are not personality-wise capable of learning unless they're taught to learn. And, of course, that's a challenge. So, 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 this is really exciting for me. (laughs) So does this suggest that that old saying that's out there saying you can um you can achieve what you dream of does that suggest that it's not that it's not true but that that's quite difficult that there are some people who will be more prone to getting on the pathway to excellence and mastery of things as opposed to others who will struggle to learn the skills that they need to get to that level of excellence or mastery yes is that correct so what what i'd suggest is that we intuitively know, intuitively know our capacity, but it's an intuitive knowledge. Mm-hmm. And intuition is a complex um, uh, part of the brain, but it, it's, it's a part that will never, it will never yell at you. It will, never, it will never be loud. It will never be obvious. And so learning to listen is very, very difficult. But if you learn to listen... And I would suggest most elite athletes, most people who strive for um, their level of excellence, they listen. When, when I look at, at the physicians and surgeons um, that I aspire to, that I, that I admire, that I look at and I go, they are very good at what they do, every single one of them is intuitive. Every single one of them. But 
intuition needs to be backed up with knowledge. Mm. So you still need to do mm-hmm. the work. You still mm-hmm. need to go and read the books. You mm-hmm. still need to um, have a knowledge base for the intuition to work on. Intuition is just a system. It's just a process. It's just a predictive process within the brain. It's, it's in fact, part of part of the um, 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 movement part of our, our brain, the, the cerebellum, we, we believe, vermis cerebellum. Um, and it's just a process, the processor that is capable of making a prediction, making a deductive reason, this and this and this, therefore that. When, when we move to a, to a um, I stand up and I walk towards the door, my predictive processor, my cerebellum, is already telling my brain exactly what's about to happen. I'm going to stop. I haven't even made the decision to stop yet, but it's already saying you're going to stop in a minute and you're going to slow down and you're going to open the door handle. So it does it. You take alcohol, it turns that part of your brain mm. off, so intuition is turned off by alcohol, and you fall into the door before you get to the, <laughs> you get to the door handle. Um, but your intuition will, will understand stuff. The, the connections of the cerebellum go down almost to a cellular level within your body. The connections it has is phenomenal. You cannot consciously be aware of everything that it is able to bring together because the information would be overwhelming to mm. you. So the intuition is there. But the intuition is a quiet, non yeah, because I was going to ask that. We talk about listening to the body yep. and intuition. And then the other phrase that gets thrown around a lot is gut instinct. Absolutely. All the so, same thing. Yeah. So is it that that feeling deep in your, deep in your belly, you know, that feeling where yep, that's you're just like, I really should just pick up the phone and call my nan? Absolutely. Okay. That, that different people experience it in different ways. Um, some people have... The gut is interesting. It's it's a whole um, nervous system in its own right, mm-hmm. and it is connected to the main main pathways. Um, it's very common for it to be the one of the the ways you can feel the the um, thing. People who think a lot will actually recognise the thoughts. Mm-hmm. There are very specific thoughts. It will take an hour to show you, but mm-hmm. uh, in fact, we've got a talk on it. Um, on on um, listening to your intuition, um, probably direct people to it if they mm, if they great, want to. Um, but there, it's a there are ways to learn to listen, mm-hmm. and all of those things come together, and you will have a sense of what you're capable of. You will also have a sense of what you're not, and if you're not willing to allow yourself to listen because you've been taught that um, someone is there whipping you to do it and someone else wants you to do it. But you will always know. We have people in our class that came into medicine that were there because their parents put them there. Mm, They did not want to do medicine. Mm. They did not want to be there. And they knew from the beginning that this wasn't where they wanted to be. Those very people go off and do their medicine. They um, get to intern year and they drop out. And one of them is now a a fantastic computer programmer and she is very good at what she's doing so this excites me because when we were thinking about starting the podcast we put it out to our community and said 
what do you want to hear about? What do you want to learn about? And one of the most common questions was how can I keep having the motivation to do what I'm doing now? And for most of them, these were runners or athletes talking to us. How, how can I keep running and keep excited about running when I'm 90? And I, it seemed like a really strange question to me because I'm just driven to run. I, I just love it. Like it's just something I'll always want to do. So if we were to try and put ourselves into their shoes and think, well, what are they feeling? What's their intuition telling them? Is it, Are they asking me that question because they probably don't want to run? They probably want to be doing something no, else? No, no it's I not that simple. It. Well, it's not that simple as, as often <laughs> is the case. What I would actually suggest is that um, what what you may be talking about and what you referred to in your love of running mm-hmm. w- there are certain activities that when we do them, they generate um, our natural pathways. For example, the opiate pathways are stimulated by running. You, you get endorphins, you get all sorts of things, dopamine rises, um, all sorts of things happen with running. If you are a person, for example, who has trouble with freedom, so you do, don't allow yourself freedom, you restrict what you, um, what you're allowed to think, what you're allowed to do. You don't allow yourself the. Uh, there's a whole set of processes, emotional um, things that result from not letting ourselves be free, because freedom is not about imprisonment. I can be in a jail and be free, because freedom is about a way of thinking. For example, you take the example of running, people will be addicted, and this is where we get, Mm -hmm. um, or dependent on running, or any of the other, um, you can be dependent on sex, you can be dependent on all sorts of things. There's a whole lot of things that you can actually do. And they, uh, we, I term the, I use the term um, subvert. So drugs subvert, but certain activities subvert. And they subvert by basically giving us a partial uh, resolution to a thing that has another side to it. So, for example, running very commonly is, and I'm not saying this in everybody, I'm just saying in, in, in a group of people who run for the um, feeling that it gives them, that group commonly has got a challenge with freedom. They are not able to allow themselves to be free and it would take too long to explain to you all of oh. the aspects of that. But what I'm, what I'm getting at is because we need freedom, okay, that's what we're actually needing. That's the emotional need. But when we run, it gives us a similar feeling to it. Now, without wanting to be crass, I just want to give you an example one of the examples is that when people are needing intimacy, which is a different different thing mm-hmm. again, and they will find themselves drawn to porn. Mm-hmm. Okay, now porn is an addiction. Okay, we know that it it, it does it. it form, there's there's a, a recognised addiction. What porn does is porn gives people a partial resolution to their intimacy. 
but it never completely does it. So they're always wanting more. They will be drawn to more and more things in the same way that you can be running and you do the first run, you feel good, but then you have to go further and then you have to be, you know, get to elite level, then you have to get to Olympics, then you have to get to whatever because (laughs) we are drawn. But what I'd actually suggest is that when it is against our systems, like when our systems are working, so... Okay, I'm sorry because it's complicated. You can have someone who knows that that's where they want to go. Like that's their journey. That's their path. That's that's where their life is being drawn. My purpose is to run for Australia at the Olympic Games and I'm on that path since I was 12. Absolutely. That is a completely different process to what I'm talking about now. What I'm talking about now, it, it may be interrelated, but it's actually to do with the one that you were just referring to about the people going, I want to be able to do this when I'm in the 90s, because if you said to somebody who has this problem and they have not resolved their issues of freedom, that they need to maybe one day not be able to run because their knees won't be able to handle it, the back or their ankle, they get terrified. They feel completely um, like, how could I survive Uh, mm -hmm. with... Without that ability, Uh, without that. And that's because the running is creating a set of experiences, a set of hormonal changes and things that mimic what we're actually needing to be doing. But, of course, nobody tells us about that that family of stuff that we need to be doing. And that is... A whole, a whole other world no, itself. That it is take, it would take so interesting because, I, again, like I, I, yeah, have to put yourself in your own shoes to think about this. But last summer, uh, the reason why I started working with a performance psychologist and I've written about it so people know that I'm doing it was because I got injured and I knew my hormones were out of balance. And I sat down with a medical practitioner and she looked at me and she, she said, "Honey." I think you need to find your femininity. And it, it, it just triggered this like whole pathway. But in that moment of being injured and unable to run, I felt trapped. Yeah. Like I, that was the exact emotion that I had was a lack of freedom. That yeah. was what it felt like. So what you're saying is that in that moment, we could see that as a window to look back, I guess, a bit to yes. what we have, what has trapped us. Everything is and there untrap to help us. You. Even the exercise, even the stuff that you're doing, because you're good at what you're doing, it has given you the experience of feeling those feelings. So you've felt them for a long, long time. Mm. So you know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And then there comes a time when you're ready. At that time, you'll be drawn to an experience of an injury or a a thing. We draw ourselves there Mm. because we're ready for it. Mm -hmm. We may not want it, (laughs) but we need it, which is the concept that's a whole other concept, which is about we only ever have what we need. But that's take, <laughs> okay. take us another well, we hour. We not great because <laughs> just looking at the time. But but then that that brings my so even that example that I just gave about you know walking into a medical practitioner's room because I was concerned, for instance, about hormones. So there are things that change or seem to from my naive point of view change our emotional behaviors so for example when a woman is premenstrual or menopausal or if um, one of us has not had enough sleep or we have a poor diet 
it seems to change our state of emotions. Yep. Am I right? Absolutely. And how does that then change our intuition? Because are we read so... Okay, they're, they're, you're talking about... Um, <laughs> I, I would suggest you, you're actually maybe talking about a whole set of apples and then you're bringing in... And the oranges over there. No, a car. Um, <laughs> okay. So um, if, we, if we stick to... The intuition is a function in its own right. It okay. is a neurological function. It's an emotional um, domain. It's, it's a thing that we do. It's a bit like yeah. walking. Yeah. So yeah. we can talk about what we do with our hands and then you go, um, and then we do something with our feet. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're both kind of movement-ish, but they're different. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, if we just leave intuition okay, we'll leave him out aside the for the moment um, and answer your question about hormones, sleep, and so on, our emotions, it's not so much that... Um, um, okay, your emotions are there to drive your behaviour, okay? And if your body needs you to do something, it will give you an emotion to do it. Uh-huh. So, yes. Yes. for example, yes. I'll use your example. When a woman goes in, a, a fertile woman, so she's still cycling, mm-hmm. goes into um, mid-cycle, so she mm-hmm. ovulates. Mm-hmm. There is a set of hormones, FSH, LH, um, that get produced. She starts producing prolactin um, or um, beta HCG, all sorts of things that start start having not beta HCG, but anyway. Um, there's a whole set of things that start to happen. At that point, you will be the most flexible, the most accepting of any time during your cycle. Women, if you do any, if you do a test and you look at uh, women putting up with crap, <laughs> a nice technical term, um, and you put, do it throughout the cycle, you will actually find that at ovulation, women will put up with more crap than at any other time during their cycle. <laughs> at um, the time of premenstrual or menstrual uh, time, they will put up with very little crap. Why do we do this? Well, this is actually evolutionary. It's actually to help us. No girl would get with a guy and um, have a child if you weren't able to put up with crap. <laughs> with respect, it is, it is um, we have to be deluded in order to do that, and our body creates that for us. So it actually yeah, gives us that point. Yeah. It's also um, fascinating because at that point, if you actually look, there's, there's been studies done, if you actually look at a group of girls that are out, okay, you can tell who's ovulating hmm. because they will show the most skin. So I'm talking that range. I'm talking without any other things, and these are generalities. But the reason we do is because we're hotter, and I don't mean... Well, actually, you no, are no, in both mean. respects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your temperature is actually higher. If you measure your temperature, it's one or two degrees higher. So you actually, even in a, a, a colder environment, you will actually expose more skin at ovulation. Hmm. Why are we doing that? We're doing that because we're drawing to ourselves a partner. We are, we are at that point where we want to be, well, the body wants us to be pregnant. So it's looking for the partner to, to um, fertilise the, the egg and so on and so forth. This is all evolutionary. It's all just to, to drive our behaviour. You then look at premenstrual. Premenstrual, we do not want anyone around. Mm-hmm. So we are as crabby as hell. <laughs> we do not want to be having sex, and there's, there's um, 
even though people will, and it doesn't mean you have, don't have any desire for it because it has its own drivers and its own addiction pathways and things like that, and we can push through any of it, I'm talking gross generalities. That is the point at which you want it the least. Mm-hmm. The point at which you want it the most is at ovulation. Mm-hmm. They're just the natural drivers. This is how our bodies work. It's really interesting. But every one of those is driven by our emotion. Every emotion is driven by hormones, by, by um, 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 neurotransmitters, by all sorts of things are actually driving that pathway. There are immune connections to, to our emotions. Mm. Um, the, the, when you are sick, you will actually not feel like anything. And in fact, the, the um, interferon, for example, will make you depressed. And it makes you depressed because you need to be lying in a cave doing nothing for your body to survive that um, insult of the, of the virus. And it is more likely to survive if you lie in a cave wishing you were dead, doing nothing, than if you were out with the tribe chasing the saber-tooth. You'll end up with your myocarditis or your, your, your whatever, and you will die from the flu. So we evolutionarily have that. The ones who didn't have it went out and did chase the saber-tooth and they died. The ones who did have it survived because they were stuck in the back of the cave, not wanting anyone to touch them and, and things because they're depressed. But I give you interferon and you will feel like crap. Certain forms of interferon, anyway. <laughs> um, you will feel depressed. But it's actually part of the, this is what our emotions are for. They're to drive our behaviour. Mm-hmm. The... the concepts of the hormones um, being the problem can certainly be the case. So you can have pills that manipulate your hormones, you can have um, abnormalities within the hormone, within the the pathways, Mm. within the um, cycles. Um, There are all sorts of disease states which will then also affect emotions. Mm -hmm. They require a different process. They require fixing the physiological problems. But 99.9% of the population, it's actually what the emotion is trying to get us to do. And that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the disease state. This whole modelling is not about the disease state. It is about the normal person, the normal process. Um, But there are, you talked about exercise, uh, sorry, about um, uh, sleep and activity. Mm. Just just give you one really interesting thing. Mm-hmm. One single thing you can do for yourself, one single thing. If, I, if we have people who are depressed, people who are, um, have low motivation and things, and they don't want to take a pill, they don't want to have ECT or um, whatever. Yes, I know ECT sounds terrible, mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. actually does work um, for severe depression and things. If they don't want to do any of that, then I give them one thing to do. I get them very specific. It's very, very specific. They need to walk, not run, walk, before 8 o'clock, for girls after breakfast, for boys before breakfast, (laughs) um, for half an hour to an hour, and then every morning they need to get up at that time. Um, They can come back if they're feeling tired and whatever, they can go back to bed, but that resetting of the... Of the circadian clock yeah. is so important for that that within four days of doing that, they will start to feel better. There's a magnificent study, um, it was done some time ago now, um, where they took um, three groups. Uh, one group they 
got to do no exercise. One group, they got to do 30 minutes exercise in the mornings, um, again, with all those parameters, without sunglasses, I might point out. Um, and um, the third group, they got to do for an hour. And what they showed was that the mood, they then did these things called well-being scores. So they did ratified anxiety scores, sleep scores, depression scores, um, life enjoyment scores, and they put it all together. These mm-hmm. were all very, very good ratified scoring systems that have been well-known and, and well-tested. And they put the whole lot together um, being a well-being score. So if you want to look it up on the net, look for a well-being score mm-hmm. and it'll come up with that thing because they called it a well-being score. There was a 45%, you believe it, 45% 45. improvement in well-being scores for both the half hour and hour exercise group. Wow. That is much, much more than um, a lot of antidepressants that are out yeah. there. And this is within four days, but it's a pill. You oh. do it and you feel better. You don't do it and you won't. So you stop <clears throat> exercising within four days. You'll go back to it um, with exercising. And the reasons why it works are amazingly interesting. But not running? I just running, have to ask that for the running may well. We're asking you. The reason we don't advise running in that context is because running puts strain on ankles, knees, okay. backs, um, so on, and we there is no advantage over walking. In fact, it's actually only activity with daylight exposure. That's what it turns out uh-huh. to be. Okay. Um, and the eating thing is actually um, is to do with another set of research that was done about um, 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 weight loss and, and yep. things. So, um, huh. That one, I, I'm going to have a whole other interview <laughs> just on that topic alone because that, that really interests me. But what you're saying is that if someone is feeling glum, we'll call it depressed for now, for now, we'll call yep. it that, or have it has a depressive state. They need to talk to their doctor. They need to talk to but their while, doctor while they're doing that. They before they can get their consult. If yep. they were to get out, do a little bit of exercise before. Okay, more not just exercise, walking. Oh, in the sunshine. Um, daylight. So this is after dawn. Needs to be before eight o'clock because what we're actually doing is resetting the circadian, the circadian clock, rhythm. and the circadian um, rhythm is reset by light exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, even on an overcast day, you will still have near on 200,000 lumens as far as I understand it. It's certainly way, way and above what you have on internal daylight. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, it's pretty obvious. Out, we've got a 25-hour circadian clock, mm-hmm. and that circadian clock needs to be reset every day. Your circadian clock drives your hormonal patterns, your, uh, for all sorts of hormones, testosterone, yes, in women and, and men, yeah. um, uh, cortisol, the growth hormone, etc., etc., etc. There's a host of things. Each one of those have a different cycle. They have, you know, um, cortisols need to be at their nadir, at, mm-hmm. um, at their mm-hmm. lowest in between two and four. Your testosterones are peaking um, in, in the morning. All these things that have different cycles, but all of them, are governed on the circadian clock. Mm-hmm. When that is out, it stuffs up a whole lot of other things within your... Back in the back in the 50s and 60s, there was a craze for biorhythms. And that craze was talking about all this sort of all this sort of stuff. But the single most useful thing you can do for yourself is getting up 
after dawn, but before eight o'clock. So it doesn't matter mm-hmm. when it is, it just mm-hmm. has to, the sun has to have risen because it's to do with light exposure and then movement. Mm-hmm. And yes, running and things will do it. But um, we don't have sunglasses mm-hmm. on um, because we, we want the light to actually penetrate. It's through actually both the light hitting the back of the retina in certain cells, there's certain cells that actually um, relate to it, but there's also a little nucleus called the superoptic nucleus, which actually gets light through transillumination of the eyeball, meaning, you know, yeah. ping pong ball on the top of, of um, torch type stuff. Huh. And that is why you need daylight. You can do a similar thing with grow lights and stuff, um, but that's a no, whole different... let's get outside. Getting outside, <laughs> outside is... Outside is uh, in my vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to Just try people and... in Antarctica and things like that can't do it. True. And so that's they true. need to do activity with the yeah. light and they need high-intensity light with full spectrum because it's the blue wavelengths of light that um, that That's the biggest help. problem. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's why the mine is so I, I, I know I need to get to a point of conclusion. I have sure. one more, if we can keep this one quick, but I'm mm. very, very anxious. I'm very, very interested about the anxiety state. Oh, sure. Just because it seems to me to be one that is quite common at the moment. Yeah. Well, it's something, it's a word that people bring up a lot. Let's yeah. put it that way. Okay. For one, need to be very careful because anxiety to us is a very specific uh, emotion, mm-hmm. a very specific emotional group. A lot of people will consider fear as being anxiety, mm. and it's not. They're different. Mm-hmm. So fear and anxiety is different. Uh, some people can consider stress as being anxiety, mm-hmm. and it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, some people will consider worry as being anxiety, and it's not. Um, some people will consider um, um, tension as being anxiety, and it's not. So these things are all that if you are talking specifically about anxiety, anxiety has a very, very interesting function. Basically, it's anxiety originates um, in the brain it, uh, evolutionary, teleologically. The argument is that um, we have a thing called separation anxiety. So separation anxiety um, was... Um, we, we have to basically keep the helpless pup close to mum or dad because if they don't, they will that die. Works. They'll get eaten. They'll get, um, they, they will f- fall over. They're blind. They're, they're um, incapable of moving too much mm-hmm. um, like a baby. And the baby would die if it did not stay with the parent. So evolutionary over the years, those that had separation anxiety would survive those that didn't have separation anxiety would die off. So we have developed separation anxiety. That same pathway that keeps us close to our parent when we are helpless, so when we are a child, if you think about it, there is a point at which the child is no longer helpless, Mm -hmm. which is around the teenage years, and the very same pathways actually push the child out of the nest Hmm. so the very same pathways that are involved with keeping the child to the mum actually are the pathways that push the child away Mm -hmm. the way that works we think is that um, when the child veers away from mum it gets anxious and interestingly it will only notice it when it stops 
to think. So the, the little little pup will mm-hmm. start smelling something. Oh, wow, this is really interesting, and smell its way to the to the um, river's edge. Um, okay, I won't go there because that's a whole other story. But anyway, um, it, while it's focused on that, um, it may not feel the anxiety. As soon as it then looks around, it goes, oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where's mum? And it, then the anxiety kicks in. Then the anxiety kicks in, and it's also where the crying pathway comes in. So mm-hmm. the child will cry. That cry is heard by the mother, which initiates their um, care pathway, their worry pathway, um, and then they will come searching mm-hmm. and, and so on. The anxiety um, that keeps the child to the mother, okay, we'll go back to our our shoe tying Mm -hmm. experience. When I don't know how to tie my shoelace, I will get anxious. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mum, you tie my shoelace, I can't tie my shoelace. That type of thing. Mum comes along and helps you tie your shoelace. At a point, you get to the ability where you can tie your shoelace now. Now, this is, you're now grown up, mm-hmm. okay? You might be four, five, six, somewhere around there, something like that. Now, I might point out this is just one of the things. Now I can tie my shoelace. And I can tie my shoelace and mum comes along and goes, oh, I'll tie that shoelace for you. And you go, no, no, get, get away, you know? And you've got the rebellious child. Don't do that, mum. Go away. I'm doing it. What's that behaviour about? It's actually because they're anxious when they don't do it. So Uh, when you actually have the capacity to do something and you you do not do do it, it. you'll get anxious. And this is the whole thing where panic pathways come in, the panic attack comes in. When you are about to jump in the river, okay, you put your foot into the the water and you go, doesn't really matter how hot it is, mm-hmm. you still... <laughs> yeah, you do, yeah. You do. And that is the beginning of a hyperventilation attack. It's actually the beginning of the dive reflex. So we put our foot in the water and we go... <gasps> mm-hmm. And we do that a couple of times as we're walking. <gasps> and eventually we get to the point where we go, oh, bugger it, and we dive in. And as soon as you dive in... It's fine. It's fine, and we feel calm, and we feel relaxed. And that's because the dive reflex is part of this pathway. Mm -hmm. People who get anxious very commonly have a very advanced dive reflex. So they will find that when they were swimming, they feel the most calm and the most relaxed sitting at the bottom of the pool, (laughs) just looking up. (laughs) And that's because the dive reflex is actually there to help us survive. So back to the pup finding its way to the edge of the edge of the uh, water, mm-hmm. because usually the edge of water is steep, steep, and water is something that a pup will be drawn to because it's a fundamental need is water. So it's kind of like a bit of a paradox and a bit of a challenge. But what nature has done is given us the dive reflex. So. As the pup starts to slide into the water because it's got too close to the edge of the thing, its paws are out trying to stop itself from from, um, going in and the paws get wet. And as soon as the paws get wet, it lifts its its snout up and it goes (laughs) as it slides down into the water. As soon as the water hits its face, the pup becomes completely calm. It stops breathing. Hmm. It is calm because it reduces its oxygen need and it sits there going, oh, <laughs> and it can do that for four minutes. 
Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the mother has noticed the pup missing, has become worried, which is part of the care pathway, because if it didn't, they would lose a pup and we, you know, mm-hmm. then the mm-hmm. genetics don't get passed on, so the ones who do have it will we'll pass it on. It starts frantically. It will leave all its other pups. Mm-hmm. It will leave all its other pups and go looking for the one because of this worry pathway. It will then sniff it out, find it within the four minutes, We'll go and dive into the into the pond, grab it by the nap of the neck, put it back up on the on the um, um, on the on the ground. On the ground, the pup will shake itself off and go, "Oh, okay, that was fun. Yeah. yeah." So, where are we going next? So, so the importance of this is mm. this: when you need to do something, okay, when there is a risk, so the anxiety is to do with there is nothing more that you need to do. But there's a risk you need to take, a danger you need to to face. And there's nothing you can do about that danger. We just need to dive in. (laughs) And when we do it, people with panic attacks will find that they will... (gasps) Because they're thinking about doing something but not doing it. Once you dive in and do it, all of that goes away. And that is how um, uh, when birds leave the nest, when they're, when they're being pushed out of the nest, the mother pushes it up to the edge of the nest and it's sitting there going, <coughs> it's hyperventilating yeah. as it's coming to the edge of the nest going, shoot, this is dangerous. And then it gets pushed off. It's hyperventilated, it's increased its oxygenation in its um, brain, in its muscles, and it sits there and flaps frantically. Yeah. And yes, 90% of them, they go, oh, Oh, cool. And they survive. Some of them don't. So for us, if we are really experiencing the true anxiety, it's telling us that we need to just jump in and do it. And do it. It's dangerous. It'll but it's something risk, that you just... want to do. Yeah. It is part of your, it's an essential <laughs> part of what you need to be doing as the person that you are. And yes, there may well be repercussions. Uh, repercussions. But if you don't do it, <laughs> you can't live. If the if the baby bird did not leave the nest it would not there'd be no point it can't live in the nest all the time huh that one sits really um yeah that that one gives me a lot of food for thought after this a good take home for me so knowing that we are running out of time i just wanted to ask you what legacy are you hoping to leave behind with all the work that you're doing and all the people that you're helping. I mean, you're not an ego-driven person, don't get me wrong, but you you have a purpose, it seems. Your purpose is to want to help people. But what is it that you hope that all of this work that you're doing and all this research that you're doing is going to leave behind? Um, it's more to do with the fact that now that we've got it, it would be a shame to lose it. Mm. And so therefore you start thinking, and I did a while ago, is that it's all very well knowing the stuff, but how do you teach it? Mm -hmm. Which is actually part of what drove me to start putting the model together in the first place. We were getting good results with patients. People were changing their behaviours. People were moving out of the addiction pathways. Um, and the next step is that I'm just one person and there were lots of people we couldn't see because we just did not have the time or the funds to be able to do it. So part of the reason to doing, for doing the modelling was to actually be able to teach other people the stuff that I know mm. and 
be able to be more direct about it. Um, already we've, we've started to be able to see how you can in fact teach other people and those people can in fact counsel using those same taught skills and get the same results. And that to me is an exciting um, support for the fact that this um, information is mm -hmm. quite possibly correct. And so there must have been many successes, and actually I spent a lot of time on your website reading the testimonials and the case studies and the success stories. So it's evident that there's success. But what about failure? You talked about suicide. Mm. Um, suicide isn't a failure. No, but I wondered how you... I mean, from the outside looking in, it could be perceived to be a failure. Sure. So I'm asking you how you frame failure. Okay. Not necessarily just suicide. Okay. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I, I could talk just about suicide, but I'll... I'll failure, failure to me um, is the way you learn. If you don't... When, when, you, when we started doing this modelling, um, there were lots of things we didn't know. There were lots of things that we weren't sure of, but it was what we were thinking at the time. And so you need to put that forward as being what you understand now. You can't go, well, I don't know whether it's right or whether it's wrong, because it doesn't help anybody. Um, so we would actually put it forward as being what was our current understanding. And sometimes it was wrong. And we would then need to change it and we would um, do it. But to call that a failure mm. is, yes, of course it failed. Yes, of course it didn't work. But to me, that told us that we would need to change our model. We've, over the 25 years, we have had um, uh, four iterations. Now, I might just give you a bit of an idea of how big and what that actually means. If you have a concept of life... Okay, a concept of why you're here, what things are about, and it helps you day to day to help to work with people. So it gives you some sort of confidence that, yep, you can deal with something. And <coughs> we get information, which is patients coming to us, giving us emotions that didn't fit. And eventually you get to realise that this model is not going to work, that, that particular version of it is not going to work. So you now have to come up with a new one. It has to include everything that that included, but it's now got to include the new bits. Mm. And early on, that's a lot easier because it didn't include very much. So we could in, we start up with a um, create a different model that helped us explain everything we had there, but the new bits of information. But getting up to the last ones, in fact, the last model prior to the one we've got now, um, as soon as we we altered our model based on the information we got. So if someone had an emotion and it was caused by a particular thing and it wasn't explained in the model that we had, we didn't disregard that emotion, we disregarded the model. Hmm. So we would actually change the model. And that's how we kept iterating the model up. So the last one, basically, when I knew that it wasn't going to work, it, does not, it did not include everything that we needed it to include, we have to let it go. Hmm. Now, when you let it go, you have nothing. 
So you go from having an understanding of how it all works and everything to being completely naive, being completely vulnerable again, completely to the point where you have no idea where it's supposed to be or what you're supposed to do. That vulnerability, that, that experience of being completely naked in a war zone or crowded people or something, mm-hmm. just whatever you like to think it mm-hmm. is an extremely challenging thing. But the desire was to know the truth. Mm-hmm. The desire was to find the truth. It didn't matter how long it would take or what it would involve. That's what I wanted. So I sat for a good two years, two years without a model, knowing that the previous model was not correct, so that I could then look at developing a model that would include everything from before, as well as the new bit. And the last model that we came up with um, to explain it only came through sitting in that vulnerability, sitting in that state of confusion for two years. Most people find confusion really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. One of the good things about being dyslexic is you're confused often. (laughs) And so you learn to to be comfortable or at least not comfortable because it's not comfortable. You learn how to put up with the pain, a bit like running. So when you, when you run, you have to put up with the pain in, in the calves, in your chest, in the everything. You have to push through that pain in order to actually get to your goal. This is exactly the same. It's a pain that you have to sit with day in, day out, knowing that you don't know and, and allowing that to happen. And it, then eventually it... The intuition kicks in? Yes. Eventually you get the stuff and you've let go of enough of it because the new model completely, completely changed the way. It's like taking, thinking that something is an orange and realising that it's a car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> something. Yeah, no. Like, I hear what you're saying. And I think... Yeah. In some ways, I feel like what you're talking now is exactly the journey that I've been on over the last 18 months, where everything that had kind of worked for me to date just suddenly wasn't really relevant anymore. It wasn't really working for me anymore. And I just basically found myself in a huge place of vulnerability, which I really feel like I've been sitting in for 12 months. And it's frustrating and you get these urges where you're just like, I just need a plan, I want to fix it, but you actually can't. Well, it is well, fixing itself. It what, is. what you're doing That's by you're staying saying. there is you're you're becoming open, which is what then happened. You get the opportunities to to start the business that you've started. Mm-hmm. The people come into your life that that um, can assist, but none of that can happen. Is not going to happen right at that time. You need to stay within that feeling, being open. You don't see the opportunities if you're not open to them. Mm-hmm. If you if you don't stay vulnerable, if you don't stay um, stay curious if you don't stay um, humble mm. you don't allow yourself the opportunity and people who achieve great things I'm sure they have the capacity to be vulnerable and um, exposed for the longest because it's only at that time it's a bit like uh, swinging on a vine um, 
you know, you leave one vine and grab hold of the next, but there's a period of time when you actually leave one vine and you've let go and you're falling and you are waiting for the other vine to come and you don't know whether or not it's going to get there or not before you hit the ground. But eventually you realise it's the only path to take. And so you do. You swing, you let go, and you listen to your intuition because it told you to let go. You then have to argue with your <laughs> logic and all of that because it keeps going, oh, no, you're doing something wrong. What if the thing doesn't come? What if I don't catch it? What if, you know, all sorts of things. But when you keep going back to your intuition, you go, no, it feels fine. It feels right. I don't know why because it doesn't, won't give you that. Your logic needs to support your intuition, <laughs> not the other way around. But intuition on its own is useless without, without knowledge. knowledge. You need to do both. People who just use their intuition won't get very far. People who just use their logic won't get very far. People who understand that their intuition needs to guide their knowledge. So you come up with an intuitive thought and you use your knowledge to show why it's the case is how I suspect we need to be. Clive, um, I can't think of a better place to leave the conversation on. I feel like that is something that I want to sit with for a while, that last bit of the discussion. Thank you so much. It's, it's a bit of an honour to be sitting here before you've even released this information, before you've written your book, and be able to gleam some insight into what you're doing. And uh, So thank you for doing that today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Hope it helps. <laughs>